Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The management of savagery. The price of ambition. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and this episode is The Price of Ambition. But before we do that, I want to uh, talk a little bit about to you. I, I understand that one of my things in the, in the early part of the show was picking a fight with a dead guy. I said it per- fairly frequently, especially when it came to Machiavelli. And I haven't had the occasion to say it in a while. It's not that I don't want to. I actually like the way it sounds. But these last couple of authors we've had, you know, Frederick uh, and, and Abu Bakr Naji here, they've actually had some really solid tactical advice. Not a whole lot to disagree with there. You know, again, Vegetius and Machiavelli, they were kind of amateurs. But, but these guys, they knew what they were talking about. So, again, I haven't had much occasion to pick a fight with a dead guy. So, but, but I wanted to let you guys know I'm always looking for ways to do that. Always looking for something to pick a fight with a dead guy about. They just, they haven't given me the opportunity, I guess. But you can look forward to me picking a fight with a dead guy in the future because, you know, that's what we like to do on this show. Speaking of picking a fight with a dead guy, we did recently open up a red bubble. And I promise you that this relates to the other thing I was talking about. Uh, just to start putting some stuff out there, there's not a whole lot on it at this point, but if you search for The Art of Wargaming, you will be able to find it, and we're going to start adding more designs more frequently, but at the moment, I think we just have our logo, and then those words, pick a fight with a dead guy. So if you want to to show your history animosity, maybe, or your uh, willingness to call people out who are incorrect, even if they are dead, yeah, pick it up for yourself. I know I'm going to be sporting one, even if nobody else understands what it is. So if you have a mind, please check out our Redbubble. That's, I guess that's the point of what I'm saying. Before I move on to the, the main portion of our topic today, which is, as I said, the price of ambition, I want to talk a little bit about a game I had with my buddy TF. We recently just started a Kill Team campaign which for those of you who are unfamiliar with Kill Team or with Warhammer 40k, Kill Team is a scaled-down version of Warhammer 40k that you can play on a a reasonably sized board. And a campaign is just a series of games with the idea in mind of winning in the long term. Everybody starts out with a set number of resources, and as those resources dwindle, uh, somebody will eventually reach zero with one of those resources, and you win. But... It takes a while to get there, so I think TF and I will have some good fun. So we started our game today, and I was, of course, doing Gene Steeler Cult, because they're kind of where I'm at right now. I'm fascinated with their lore, and I really 
enjoy the challenge of working with an army that isn't top tier. Like I've got my Space Marines and they do great. I've got my Atmec, they do great. And of course, knights are knights. But this, this is something different and I'm really enjoying it. And TF, of course, plays Blood Angels. So when I saw across the board that he had brought a primarily melee list with him, I was afraid because my guys are fairly fragile and I was hoping to get into melee against folks who are shooty and not specialized with melee. So I was a little nervous. But I had taken a, a number of units that I had thought were kind of the best. I'd looked through the books and realized that the majority of the Gene Stealer cult stuff, while it may work on the larger 40K table because of just sheer numbers, isn't very great for kill team. Because not only do the uh, Gene Stealer cult fold like paper, but they also have a majority of their models with small arms. So things that are only a strength three. So that means you're not rolling very well to hit. And then if you do hit, you're not doing much against a space marine or really anything of real significance or size. So the majority of the things that, that we can take as Gene Stealer Colt were just not appealing for what I knew I was going to be facing. So instead, I focused on Acolytes because they have a decent strength, even if they are still a uh, toughness three. And it was a good move on my part, actually. I was, again, I was looking through the Acolytes and was like, all right, so what, what weapons are going to work here? And my eyes settled on the Heavy Rock Cutter, which seems at first to be a worse version of the Heavy Rock Saw because they both do times two strength, minus four AP, two damage, but the Heavy Rock Cutter is a negative one to hit. It also has an ability that if you do any damage to a model, you roll a D6, and if the result is higher than the remaining wounds that model has, it's gone. Taken out of action immediately. Do not make a roll. Do not pass go. Gone. So I said, that's pretty good. I'll take that in my list. I know I'm going to get going against some pretty tough dudes. I need as much as I can. So I, two of my specialists had uh, these heavy rock cutters. And then I had two of my non-specialists with them as well. The other specialist was an aberrant with a power armor uh, or a power hammer. And I put the Cthulhu head on him, so he looks like a really beefed out Cthulhu, and I, I really kind of dig that. And then I had a Kellermorph as a commander, and then just a neophyte leader uh, for like a cheap little leader. And I was expecting it to be a fairly decent fight, but I was likely going to lose. That was not the case. I ended up tabling him in turn three. Though at the end of turn two, he only had one model left on the table, his kill team was broken, and that model was shaken. So, uh, yeah, judge that as you will. So that, that blew me away. I only lost two models throughout the course of that. And I was very surprised by the outcome. Again, Blood Angels are made for melee. That's, that's their whole jam. And I wasn't expecting to just murder the whole team. So that was a surprise to even me, but I was using the lessons that I've been learning here from Abu Bakr Naji, which is to say, you know, always have local numeric superiority, uh, move fast, hit hard, like really dedicate to what you're doing. Um, and it worked. So if you're running one of the ambush style teams or, or anything along those lines, yeah, these lessons are pretty good and I highly recommend them. Well, without further ado, I think we're going to get into the, the main section of our episode today, and that is on the game.
Our main topic today is the game. And I do not mean uh, one of the many war games that we enjoy, whether it be an intellectual or physical war game. We talk about those quite a bit too. But this is about the game, the dangerous game, politics. Now, before you turn off the podcast, I need to point something out to you. There is not a single human organization devoid of politics. Every single school you've gone to or taught at, every church, every small group, every chess club, every book club, every bar, all concern politics. Everywhere you go, human beings establish a pecking order. They establish a certain way of doing things and relating to one another, certain power structures that they enforce. And these are absolutely everywhere. So if you think that you are above, or if we think that we are beyond politics, we are mistaken. Now, there are some politics that are good for an insurgent and a counterinsurgent. And in this particular case, I'm going to be speaking of organizations, their stability, and how power changes within them. Because nothing lasts forever. No regime is eternal. And this is true with any of our groups, too. Whether it be your local gaming group, your local uh, fighting group, every single one of them, there are politics taking place. Now, you can ignore them. We are always free to ignore them. One does not have to study politics in order to fight. But it helps. It helps for a, a large number of things. It helps with one's ambition. This is the price of ambition, because eventually, at some level, you will deal with this. I did. I didn't want to. When I, like, when I first started doing life, I believed that I was beyond politics. I believed that uh, they didn't affect me if I didn't think about them, and I could just go through my life without ever having to acknowledge them. And while that was true to an extent, when I actually started to improve at things, I started to see that politics absolutely happen. And I'm not talking about dirty backroom dealing politics. Those surely happen as well. But just normal, everyday human politics. And I slowly began to realize that if I truly wanted to be successful, if I truly wanted to understand people, understand my enemy, I had to rub elbows with them, take them to dinner on occasion. Because in this way, you can really get inside someone, someone's head, figure out what makes them tick. So this is what I advise, politics. So in this particular case, the counterinsurgent would be the ruling regime, whatever, whatever case that might be, whether it's the inner clique of whatever group you're a part of, or whether it's an actual recognized authority in your or organization, the counterinsurgent represents the established, the traditional, the regime that has been in place up until the point that we are speaking of. The insurgent would represent somebody who is attempting to usurp that natural order, whether it be to kind of carve out a piece of that power for themselves, to completely upend the entire system and put something else in place, or whether it's just straight up to irritate, annoy, or get in the way of a regime that they see as unjust or unfair. These are all reasons for an insurgent to pop up. As we've seen over the last several episodes, there are a lot of reasons insurgency occurs, but it's always because there's some sort of defunctness to the state. Because an insurgency needs resentment, bitterness, 
to take hold. So before we talk about these two separate camps, what applies to the insurgent and what applies to the counterinsurgent, I want to talk about the universal politics, the things that apply to everyone. Abu Bakr Naji says, it is wise to work at mastering politics as one works to master military science. He mentions in this particular section that many of his comrades find politics distasteful. They think that it, it is polluted, corrupt. It goes against their belief system. But he reminds them, he says, politics is important. You have to win the media game. You have to win the political game in order for your military gains to mean anything in the real world. And it's often the case in wargaming as well. Great players get overlooked for popular players. It doesn't mean you can't be both. In fact, it's, uh, you should strive, really. I strive to be both. But that often happens because they don't know how to politic. So one of the first things one needs to remember about politics or really any human organization where reputation is concerned, is that a single political mistake leads to a result worse than a hundred military defeats. A single political mistake can crash an entire career. All that glory, all that honor, gone because of a political mistake. Humans are fickle creatures. Their attentions, their affections wax and wane. Just because somebody is on top one day does not mean they will be there the next day. Every single person within an organization is looking to challenge, looking for a mistake, looking for an opening. One must not give it to them. So this is something to remember. Something I try to remember is not to make these mistakes. We're all human. We're all going to make mistakes eventually. But in this particular case, when you're trying to accomplish something, it is best to be able to work with people and get them underneath your banner. Accomplishing something by yourself, well, that can be nearly impossible. But accomplishing something with a group of people, that is what we excel at as a species. But to make this work, to avoid those mistakes that I was talking about, one has to deal straight with people. No lies, no deception, no double dealing, because these things will get you into trouble. If, you, if, if one practices these like what we would consider immoral or unethical practices, it is irrelevant whether or not they win in the short term because those things can be used against someone later on. You may be at the top of your game and yet people come forward and they say, oh, well, this person did this corrupt thing or that corrupt thing. And those little political mistakes, those little lies, little deceptions that were made along the way suddenly come to light. And at that point, you're dealing with a full-on PR disaster. So deal straight. I try to deal straight. Again, we're all human. We all make mistakes. But it, it, it put, uh, we try to put forth our best effort to dealing straight with people because then they want to help us. You know, if people don't trust us, why are they going to want to help us? So it's good. It's good to be trustworthy. But at this point, there is a particular line that he says in this uh, section that I wanted to pick a fight with. So here it is. I'm picking a fight with a dead guy. He says... The political management must be directed by a military leader. I disagree with that. Within uh, my home sport of Belagarth, it's true. There are many leaders who are fighters, and primarily fighters, and they do just fine. But there are also leaders who either are not common on the field or don't really fight at all. And these folks 
usually put their time and their energy instead into understanding the administration of running an event, of running a realm, of running a unit. You know, these folks are involved all over the place and they see and they, they hear all sorts of things. And, and true, most people in the world are not super cut out to be leaders. They can be taught to be fairly competent people, but the majority of people are not necessarily fit to lead. And so when somebody is able to show that kind of potential, even if they are not in a position like within a fighting community to earn that kind of reputation on the field, well, I think that's impressive. And I also think that somebody with a mind for administration would be good in those roles. Do I think that they should be in charge absolutely without any sort of advisors or, or people to help them out and keep things realistic? No, I don't. Because I've also seen that go wrong where you have a non-com or a non-combatant who is running things and has a completely unrealistic idea of what occurs on the field. Making games not based on the actual physics or physical ability of people. So it helps to have somebody there to say, oh no, well this is the, you know, the military consideration or the game consideration to kind of balance that out. But I don't believe that political management has to be directed by a military leader. Uh kind of helped along maybe, but not necessarily directed. And I mean, you guys are free to disagree me, with me. Don't, don't get me wrong, but this is the one thing in this book in particular that I definitely wanted to pick a fight with. Now, we need to define power at this point. And that is a really, really tricky concept to define because you think that it would be fairly easy. You just look in the dictionary. You see the definition, this is power. But there are full lecture series dedicated to this subject, books upon books, philosophers all have tried to tackle the issue of what is power? How do you get it? What does it constitute? How do you lose it? And while a lot of that may be an ambiguous concept, Abu Bakr Naji argues that power is achieved through ties of loyalty. Having people that you can count on and that know that you can be counted on. These ties of loyalty become power. Many become one. The ability to move mountains is then possible. So power then is, is this concept of community. It's the ability of, of a bunch of people being able to be directed in, in one way. Because when humans put their minds to something, we accomplish something amazing. We are fully capable of, of changing or ending the world simply with our technology, our enlarged cerebral cortexes in our thumbs. It's great. So you combine all that power together, things can be accomplished. But what are these ties of loyalty? How do we foster them? How do we begin to grow them in the first place? Well, the biggest idea is to accept and to help and to assist allies and potential allies. Always be offering, always be, be uh, we want to present ourselves as somebody who is helpful. We want to present ourselves as somebody who can not just be counted on, but can be counted on in a competent way. And through this, people begin to look favorably upon you. And if you prove yourself competent in your favors, people are going to want to do favors for you in return, partially because they like you, hopefully, but also partially because they want those favors to keep coming. So in this way, those ties of loyalty are built out of necessity. We should always look for ways to deepen those ties of loyalty way back in the way, way when 
it would have involved marrying your children together and, and cementing those groups together. But within our communities, you can, you can do an exchange program. I know that there are a lot of units, for instance, within Belagarth, where you'll have people from a realm or people from a unit go over and, and work and, and basically live someplace for a month or a few weeks and really learn not just the culture of where they are, but like deepen those ties of loyalty with themselves, their units, and their communities. And this is, this is awesome. This is a, a good thing to do. So anything you can do to deepen these ties and really make sure that that power block is cemented. But we should not depend on the support of those whose loyalty we are unsure of. I mean, it's great to be always looking for ways of deepening this loyalty, sharing conflicts and struggles and persevering together. But you need to know, we need to know that these folks are to be trusted, that they have our best interests at heart. And we're going to talk about interest here in a little bit. But that the self-interest all aligns in the same direction. So if, if we're not sure of somebody... We should not trust them. We should not pull uh, put a lot on them. That's not to say they can't be around. Not to say they can't even necessarily participate. But to be given a chief role or to be given some sort of authority, not at this point. We should avoid that. Because, again, how do you know who to trust unless they've proven it? The rules of the basic political game are quite simple. People are motivated by certain things. And when you understand that, you can maneuver around a lot more. The first one is that material motivation works. Gift giving is a real thing. There are whole cultures, for instance, a lot of the Celtic cultures demonstrated their personal power, their personal competence, their wealth by being generous. You could tell that this warlord or this chieftain was very, very powerful, very well off because of the banquets they would throw and the aid that they would send their allies they were proudly declaring their ability to provide. So who wouldn't want to be allies with them? A person of plenty, a person who is able to be there and be supportive. All of this was fantastic. So material motivation is real. And of course you have things like bribes, things that people like and that you're then uh, offering them. And that, uh, that is a slippery slope. But it is wise to remember that people are motivated by material things whether it be fine vittles, good equipment, nice clothes. Most people have a price. And that, that's an unfortunate rule, but it is, it is true. The second one here conserves that interest thing that I mentioned earlier. And it is that all parties act out of self-interest. All humans act out of self-interest. No person, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many philosophers, is truly altruistic. Because even if you enjoy helping other people, there's that word. You enjoy it. Even if being generous gives you a little tickle in your belly, is that not part of the reason that one does it? I love to teach. One of the things that I absolutely enjoy about my life is being able to work with the high school kids and, and teach folks when I can and do this podcast. But even that isn't altruistic. I've been paid for it on occasion. And when I do this show, for instance, I get a rush. I love doing the research. I love doing the notes. I love doing the talking. All of it is very pleasing to me. So that's my self-interest. I obviously have some sort of pleasure that I get out of this. And all people are this way. 
So if your self-interest aligns with other people, that's great. But it's also very, very good to understand that self-interest is always at the heart of everything, of everything that other people do, of everything that we do. The third point to be made here is that there is no permanent hostility or harmony between groups or individuals. I've seen that in my, my long tenure. My, my biggest social circle has been Bellegarth. And I've had friends come and go. Sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're enemies. They go back to being friends. It's very strange to predict how those things go as the scales of power are upset and are seeking to balance. It's always strange to see how things go. You never know. You, you may have a best friend one day and then something will happen. The self-interest will change and that harmony will become hostility and vice versa. So I suppose what, what I'm saying here is that one probably shouldn't get too hung up on it, but should understand that all these relationships, all alliances are fluid, constantly changing in their nature and in their trajectory. And if we understand this truth, if we understand this reality, we can better predict it and not be cut up and, and tumbled over by these winds of change. The last rule of the overall political game is that without certainty, most people will remain neutral. The majority of the population in any given conflict isn't involved. You know, throughout World War I and World War II, the majority of Europe was quiet. There have been, may have been terrible political things occurring there, but the, 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 there was peace, is what I'm saying. The American Civil War, you know, we, we talk about these battles, we talk about these incredibly dramatic clashes between the North and the South, and it begins to form an image in one's mind that the whole of the United States was like that, that the whole of the United States was just on fire. And while there were 300,000 battles, engagements, skirmishes fought throughout that conflict, the majority of the country was quiet. The majority of people went about their lives and they may have been stressed. They definitely may have talked about the controversy and compared their points and opinions, but it was peaceful. There was occasional violence, but majority of people wouldn't even know there was a war on if you didn't tell them. And that's the case with the majority of wars in history. And nobody wants to break that. Like if, if everything's going fine, not terrible, not great, but fine, why would you risk it? Why would a person walk away from a perfectly valid position if there isn't something better waiting for them and without the certainty of something better waiting for them? So unless one can guarantee that certainty, you, don't, you can't depend on all the people to be on your side. One has to remember that the majority of people will endeavor to remain neutral, whether it's an active stance or a passive stance. This is the reality. So within this reality, let's talk about the considerations for the insurgent. And again, as an insurgent, we may have many goals, whether it is uh, to rise in the ranks because we think that we're worthy, to rise in the ranks because we like the challenge, to rise in the ranks because we want to oppose in a, a regime that we consider incompetent or oppressive, or doing it just because you want to. There's people who just, who just have ambition for the sake of ambition. All of these things are valid, of course, within, the, within love and war. <laughs> Isn't that the saying? So whatever the reason for our particular insurgency, it's kicked off. 
And where do we go from there? If there's a reason, we have a, a motivation. The first step is polarization. Now, polarization occurs when the masses are exposed to some sort of controversy and they split. And they're going to split into three different parties. You're going to have people who ally with your interests, people who are neutral, and then you're going to have people that are against or the enemy of your interests. So when this polarization occurs, these lines become far more vivid. The majority of the time, the population is intermixed. Ideas come and go rather easily, and there's an inter interchange of, of culture, of opinions, and you don't really get that same kind of polarization. However, when there's a significant controversy that really drives people's opinions apart, well, that's, that's when you start to get this polarization, and the insurgent thrives upon it. This is where you'll start to gain a little bit of power. You start to chip away at the power that is already established because they're struggling to control a controversy while we are working to kind of maintain it. Now, when this controversy occurs, I'm not necessarily talking about something incredibly horrific, but it could just be, you know, challenging the rules or, or somebody's understanding of the rules and being proven right. It could be having a better idea of how to do something, whatever it is that causes this polarization to start occurring on whether or not they like the current regime. That's what you want. And one should always endeavor to attract neutral parties, as they are often crucial to victory. As we've said before, the majority of people will remain neutral in any conflict. And so attempting to, to cull their favor, bring them over to your side, is crucial. But in the meantime, one must unite like-minded individuals and transform them into praiseworthy competitors. We've already got this kind of destabilization occurring. How will we prove ourselves the more competent ruler? If there is nobody proven, the controversy dies, the polarization goes away, and everything goes back to the way that it was. If our job is to upset the balance, if our job is to take that power, then we need that loyalty that we had spoken of before, because this power is achieved through ties of loyalty. So if we're taking these like-minded individuals and bringing them up with us so that we can all kind of work together, well, there you go. You've got a, a real challenge to the established power structure. Now, there are some important obstacles and solutions that an insurgent should be aware of along this trail. The first one is a decreasing number of allies. Anytime that you are the little guy taking on the big dog, there's always going to be hemorrhaging of numbers. When we first started out in Belagarth, and this is, unfortunately, this is going to be where the majority of my examples this episode are coming from, because that's the main social group that I've been a part of. But these these rules apply to anywhere. It does, It's not specific to sword fighting. It can be within any group. But when we first started, as the uh, Dreadgate Mercenary Alliance here in Stygia, we had high hopes for ourselves. We were doing this. We were, you know, training people up. We were, like, taking a bunch of new fighters, like, you know, greenbacks, and we were bringing us all up, making us all praiseworthy competitors. But then, they started to get chipped away. You know, somebody would be recruited by, uh, by the BOF. Somebody would be recruited by the Urukai because these are larger groups, well-established groups with very good pedigrees. And slowly, slowly, it was eaten away until there wasn't a whole lot left. So this decreasing number of allies is a huge problem just because of the power differentiation. The solution 
is to recruit more people, especially the young, especially young people. We've talked about it before. High schoolers and early college students, while their bodies are still fresh and unbroken, I say here at 34, ow. Those are the people you want to try to recruit. Those are the people that we want to bring in, not just for the sport to keep the lifeblood alive, but also into our organizations if we're trying to, to come up. Because this new blood is important. And we build them up by educating them and training them in what we do. So this is the fix to the increasing number of allies. Seems pretty obvious. Bring in new people. The second thing is with such small numbers, there's a lack of administration, a lack of, of leadership, a lack of a of framework in order to operate. And the solution to this is to look for those leaders. They don't necessarily have to be people that are already established, long-time grizzled veterans that have been there and seen it and are maybe too jaded to perhaps do politics. But leaders will reveal themselves. Leaders are not bosses. They are not promoted to that station by their superiors. Leaders are chosen by their peers. The reason that people follow a leader is because they want to because they believe in that person, because that person provides something for them, their life, whatever's going on. So nurture those leaders. If they begin to come up, if they begin to reveal themselves, we shouldn't feel threatened by that. Even though they may attempt to take our crown eventually, one has to acknowledge that. But, but making sure that there are good leaders in good positions and that that is able to kind of encompass what is going on, we can't stifle that. We can't stifle it just because they come from somewhere else or might have slightly different ideas. If their self-interest aligns with our self-interest, build them up. And the third obstacle that one needs to wash is excessive zeal. You wouldn't think this might be a problem, but as we discussed in, in particular, the first book on Sun Tzu, this idea of being able to keep your temper, keep your wits about you, is also very important as an insurgent. As we discussed before, a small mistake, a small political mistake can bring the whole thing crashing down. It can ruin the confidence that people might have in your insurgency. So temper that zeal. We can't rush our operations. Not unless there's a, a reason to, there's some external uh, influence that is kind of speeding up the timetable, but impatience is really the enemy of the insurgent. And the last thing is to cut loose fools. It can be hard. These people might be friends. These people might be family. These people might be, you know, folks who are well thought of in the community, perhaps. But if they are a fool and they're detracting from your organization, if they're going to compromise the integrity of that operation, they can't be there because everybody counts in an insurgency. You don't have the numbers to back it up. If we're an insurgent, we don't got a whole lot of people to throw at a problem. There isn't room. There isn't time for incompetence. So lose the fools. Again, if this is if you're trying to like, like really pursue the political game, I understand most people do not get this deep into it in order to cut those ties of loyalty. And just a suggestion. But now let's shift over to the counterinsurgent. Let's say that we're the ones in power. We're the president or the king or the PM or whatever you want to say of this particular group, of this continent, of this realm, of this wargaming group down at a store. 
whatever the case may be. We're kind of the ruling power. We say what goes on and when it goes on. Four things to remember here as a counterinsurgent. The most important, and this is important to the insurgent too, but it's something that is really important to the counterinsurgent, especially in the late game, is that the support of the population is vital to both. You, we cannot win without the support of the population. If you're looking to challenge the, the regime that's currently over you, but nobody else wants you there, you're not going to get it. If I want to become uh, the master poobah of some particular place, but I've managed to upset every single person there, it doesn't matter if I might even be the best person for that job. If, if I don't have popular support, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter for much. So that's vital. And that's something to remember. The second consideration for the counterinsurgent is that support, the support we were talking about before, the support of the population is gained from an active minority. In the last little bit about the insurgent, we talked about the allies, the neutral, and then the against. Well, this particular book, this is Counterinsurgency by David Galula. I've been consulting that a lot. It's a fantastic book. But there's going to be an active minority in favor of what you're doing. And then there's going to be the neutral majority, the majority of people who it doesn't really affect they don't necessarily care. They just want to be there to play wacky bats or to move little plastic of soldiers around or, or whatever the case your wargaming might be. There's going to be people who just are not involved. And then you're going to have the active minority against whatever the reforms are. Now, whatever we, we, these are going to come in different percentages, especially if, if we're well-liked, if we're well-liked by the population, our active minority in favor will be larger than the active minority against and vice versa if we are disliked heavily by the population. So nurturing that active minority is very important for the counterinsurgent who is attempting to keep power. The support that one gains from the population is conditional. Remember that there is no permanent hostility or harmony between groups and individuals, just like there is no permanent hostility or harmony between a state and those who it governs. Just because we are doing well one day, just because we get praised or are called the best group at some point, doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. And it needs to be watched for. So an understanding that the support of the population is conditional, there's a few things to understand there too. Reforms are completely ineffective if an insurgent controls the population, this active resistance. So if we're trying to put an event off or a tournament off, and we're, we're wanting to do certain things or, or it's going to be complicated, it's going to involve volunteers. Well, if those volunteers have been influenced by the insurgent, not a lot's going to get accomplished at that tournament. You're going to have infighting, you're going to have bitterness and people perhaps not showing up to shifts or whatever. And so overall reforms or overall motions towards something are going to be ineffective. Or even within the group itself, you want to change the way that something is done or you want to institute a new practice or a new policy. If there's active pushback against that, if there are people actively working against us, it's going to be ineffective. And it's, it's honestly just going to show us to be incompetent to the people that we are trying to convince that we're supposed to be in charge of. So there is a need to demonstrate competency early. Once, once the insurgency starts, once the power begins to shift, 
we need to demonstrate competence at something. At something, administ something regarding administration, I should specify, military victories in this particular case will not win over the support of the population. There needs to be some demonstration of the competency that we have as to why we deserve our office. If there is to be negotiations with the other side, it must be of a position from strength. If it is not, it shows weakness. It shows that you are unable or unwilling to kind of force the other person into a position where you are in, are in favor. So if we are going to negotiate with a person who is challenging us, it needs to be some place that we are powerful, some place that we have, where we have just accomplished something, where we have praise, where we have supporters, that strength is necessary. But the strength is also gained when independent groups actively lend their support to us. Because obviously, if we've got like a core group of people that we can always depend on to be there, those are not going to be the active minority that's really going to accomplish something for us. Those who are going to accomplish something for us are independent groups that support our cause. Other groups coming in and helping, that's strength. Remember, we had talked about the many becoming one. Once you have that strength, you can negotiate. And once you demonstrate competency, you have the support. And once that support is there, that is what we're looking for. But these efforts must be focused. As we said before, these wide-sweeping general reforms are likely not going to be effective and are going to give the appearance of incompetency. So our efforts must be focused successively, area by area, person by person. We've had controversies here in this realm in the past where facts got twisted where ideas were formed that were not accurate to the situation that was going on. But when there isn't a whole lot of communication, people can dream up the strangest things. And so what I did as I was a leader at the time is I went around to the folks who I knew had questions, the folks that I knew were trepidatious about the situation, and I sat down with them. And I said, okay, here's what's going on. What can I do to make this better for you? What can I say to reassure you that your fears are not to come to pass in this particular case? And that was way more effective than addressing the whole group and saying, hey, what can I do for y'all? Because at that point, you know, the whole group is sitting there neutral. Nobody wants to speak out necessarily. But going to people one by one and figuring out what they need and how to accomplish it and how you can bring them to your cause, this is important. It can be very tempting as the person who's already in power to just issue a wide-reaching uh, decree and then be done with it. But that's not the way that we retain that support. So that's the game when we're talking about it. That's the very basic. Again, whole books, whole series, all these philosophers throughout the ages have attempted to define power and the way to go about politics. This is the way that I've read from Abu Bakr Naji and David Galula with a little bit of my stuff intermixed in there as well. But take this into consideration that all of life, all of human interaction is politics. So it pays to be good at it. And on that note, we're going to go to our interview with Antoinette. My guest today is actually one of the highest ranking members within the sport of Bellegarth. And she is here to help me talk about these, uh, these prices of ambition that we discussed in the first section. Now, 
I would like you all to give an, a huge welcome to Squire Antoinette, Finner's daughter, The Moose Witch. Thank you for uh, coming to the show. Hi, Malark. We were talking a little bit today about these uh, these prices of ambition, but I'd like the listeners to know a little bit about you first. Um, so what's what's your experience with wargaming? So I have been doing this thing we call Belagarth for about 14 years. I counted that out today uh, and was slightly shocked. Um, and so that's that's really all. I don't do any, like, Warhammer or other, like, live-action role plays. Just Bell. Um, I am squired to Dragoon Dop of the Highlands of Chaos, um, and I've been doing that squire thing for about five or six years now. I would have to count that. Um, I'm also a Master Central, which is a master of service-related things within the Essentials Guild of Belagarth, which is the service-orientated guild. We have three guilds. There's a... Uh, Arts and Sciences one, and that's the Artificers Guild. And then there's one for stuff like this, like podcasts and videos, uh, and that's the Chroniclers Guild. Um, and I am working on my mastership towards uh, Master Chronicler, but that's going to take a while because it involves a lot of lore writing. Um, I am the PR coordinator for Belagarth, and I've also been the secretary for Belagarth. Um, and I, I find I like the PR quite a little bit better. It's a little less stressful. <laughs> well, excellent. It sounds to me like you're a, a heavily involved person who has been at just about every single la layer and strata of our social uh, kind of structure. I mean, if you say so. I'm just who I am. <laughs> no, no, you've got an excellent pedigree. Um, so at the moment, again, you're serving in an official capacity uh, on the uh, board of directors. And the last year has been really tough on everybody in just about every country. Obviously, the BOD has also been dealing with this as a, as a human institution. Uh, and, and where there is uh, controversy, there is often polarization. With all these issues that, that we've been dealing with as an organization, how does the BOD maintain uh, control? How do they control those controversies? So part of it is that the, the BOD actually doesn't really control anything in Belagarth. We're there uh, to deal with like the day-to-day -day stuff. Like we're there to make sure we continue being a federally funded nonprofit or not federally funded, but federal nonprofit organization. We're there to make sure mm -hmm. our Idaho state incorporation paperwork stays filed. We're there to like make sure the war council votes on stuff. Um, but the most of the day-to-day -day decisions of like how to deal with people being salty on our Facebook groups and stuff is done through uh, a group of moderators that are from across the community that include the six of us, but also include people from different aspects of uh, walks of life. We just added a new moderator recently who's a new member of Belgarth who came over from Diagram to make sure that we have a balance of like these new people who might be coming over because we did just get a massive influx of new Belagarth realms um, because of the power fluctuations within Dag here, uh, which is uh, an interesting thing. Um, so we grew well, they're shrinking because their power, people in power refuse to 
change or modify how they're functioning because they don't care about their community, essentially. Um, <laughs> and so, like, we've been working to make sure that, like, the six of us um, are balanced. So, like, if something's getting really out of hand and we think uh, someone with slightly more uh, ability to be polite in stressful situations, so like Sarka or I, um, will step in where some of the guys will step out so that they don't say things that could get us in trouble. Um, and so it depends on like the situation, who's going to take something. So like if we're working through a removal of somebody and we're working through an investigation, uh, investigation air quotes, because they're not really investigations. They're just information collecting. And we're working through getting that information. If this is someone who's in one of our realms or one of our units or is a really close friend, or in our unit family, because some of us have those, um, we're going to recluse ourselves to make sure that there's no bias towards something going on. And we're going to make sure to the best of our ability that everything's done subjectively. Um, and that we have the most, like, this is the information here it is, do with it what you will when we hand it over to the War Council. Not, these are our opinions on this information. Um, so we're really careful to, like, balance how we post things. And, like, if we're going to post a message to, like, the how we think we're going to open up Belagar thing we posted recently, we went through three or four edits of that before we posted anything. Um, and all that was was a suggestion like this is the information we have from the sources we can have access to do with this information what you will essentially sure well i mean it's, it sounds a lot like um delegation the separation of power and inclusive representation are kind of crucial to making that political machine work uh in Belagarth, most definitely we have oh god 38 39 voting realms i think and um, I mean, they're representative of realms across the country and across the international lines of Belagar. So, I mean, like Thunderguard is, uh, I think, one of our only active Canadian realms um, and they're a voting realm. We have a speaking realm that's in Germany who, I mean, I'm sure will go for voting rights when they're able. Um, and there's talk about allowing the newly included, like newly moved over DAG realms to waive part of that like year wait before they can become a speaking realm. Um, but that vote didn't pass, but I'm sure it will come up again next month in the next voting period. Well, right on. Um, yeah, I, I, again, having, having something that works, something that keeps it functioning and has people feeling like their voice matters uh, is very important for something where we don't have conscription or drill sergeants or anything along those lines. Um, I do want to uh, go back to something you were talking about previously. You were mentioning that another one of the foam fighting groups in the country is kind of having a meltdown. They're having some issues uh, with, with uh, overreach with using their political power in an inappropriate way. Um, and it seems like their popular support has completely dwindled. The faith in the administration is completely gone. What's the difference? Like, well, why is Belagarth keeping it together and managing to, to weather this crisis where this other group is not? Um, 
personal opinion, it's because when our members so the Bellagram be like, hey, we want to deal with this thing. You should be dealing with this thing. We set out to deal with the thing. So Dag is having some major issues because it's refusing to modernize in a way that includes like keeping predators out of their community, banning people for sexual or alleged sexual misconduct, banning people who have previous records of sexual, like physical records of sexual misconduct. Um, and like Aratari owns Dag here. Um, essentially. And so the only people who can be in power in DAG must also be part of the Aratari. And that hasn't changed mm. since God, however old DAG is, I don't actually know. Um, and that was part of the reason Belagarth broke off of DAG here in 2001 is that the representation wasn't there. And we function because it's it's bottom up instead of top down. So DAG is mostly top down. It's the Aratari says this is what we're doing, and so this is what everyone has to do. Uh, and they don't care what other people think. They're just going to do what they want to do, regardless of how that, in this case, affects their community. Um, where Bell is bottom up. The realms uh, of the War Council go. This is what we want to happen. So this is what's going to happen. So like Belagarth was really worried when we posted are about posting like the statement that we support black lives matter, not because we don't support black lives matter because we do, but because we were worried that it would be polarizing to the community, but the community went, no, we want you to post this. And there was an overwhelming like urge that it should have been posted earlier. Um, and so now that we know that, um, we'll act differently in different situations. Um, so like if our community says, Hey, we want to work on removing people who are unsafe from our community. We wrote new bylaws. We sought out a lawyer to make sure those bylaws didn't break any Idaho state law because Idaho is where Bellagarth is incorporated as a business entity. And that's the laws we have to like follow. Um, and so now we do that. Um, if someone comes forward with information that someone has allegedly been harassing them or was sexually mis like was had alleged sexual misconduct was allegedly violent with like non-sexual violence um regular old harassment stalking those sorts of things um we take those things really seriously and we sit down to make sure we have all of the information we can possibly get and then we present that to the war council in the safest uh most um, confidential way possible. Um, our secretary, uh, Sarka recently created a report format that works really well that we're going to continue to use, um, because it's very like, this is the information. Here you go. Um, and makes like reporting easier and redacting information that needs to be redacted a lot easier. Um, and so I think the reason that Bellagarth is functioning and is functioning through the pandemic and DAG isn't is because we do things like the community wanted online events. So we had online Bifter and we had online chaos wars and we still had things like classes and Bardic and heck, we even tried to have pub night online for, uh, for chaos. And it sort of worked. We had some major technical errors that we'll hope we'll fix this year, but we had some major technical errors, but like the community wants to do something. It's, it's sort of like, we did a t-shirt contest, right, for our red, our fundraising site. Um, and one of the ones that was 
um, submitted was a literal dumpster fire. Um, and DAG would have never allowed that to be merch because they would see that as, as poor PR and that they're less than perfect. Um, but that's what the people wanted. It's our top selling art. Like we have sold more things with that art on it than we have sold other things with that art, other things with other art on them because that's what our community wanted. And sure. Well, an outsider may think that's a little bit weird. If we want the red bubble to work, we want the community to buy things that they want to wear or they want to rep. And if they want to rep a dumpster fire, then we're going to let them rep a dumpster fire. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with why DAG is falling apart and very quickly losing its base. Like the mo- the, today, um, the most recent thing that they had a big, big problem with is that their board of directors, so the Aratari went and told the RAG staff, um, Ragnarok is their big major event that happens usually in Pennsylvania every year, that ensuring the continuation of Daga here was more important than Ragnarok. Um, and that made a lot of the rag staff go, um, wait, what? Um, because rag was supposed to be sort of separate from DAG and had a separate board of directors and had separate funding. Um, and so when they got told that, um, the, merchant coordinator stepped out, the treasurer of rag stepped out, uh, Blood Horde, which is a really major unit within the Aratari, who did a lot of volunteering and running for RAG, stepped out. Um, and I mean, the realm that the Arbiter of Dagahir was from is now a Belgarth realm. They chose to mm. switch over. Um, RAG or Dag also lost one of their biggest non Aratari realms to us earlier this month, Arendor, which covers. Ohio and Michigan um, is now a Belgarth realm. Um, Middlemarch, which was a large part of uh, Indiana DAG, is now a Belgarth realm. Um, most of the other Indiana and Ohio DAG realms are now Belgarth realms. A significant chunk of Florida that was DAG are now Belgarth realms. There are realms within the like purview of what our Atari, like the area that our Atari considers theirs, that are now Belagarth realms because they're fed up with our Atari's inability to listen to what the community wants. I mean, they said, okay, we'll open up our board of directors positions to anyone who wants to run, but then proceeded to delete, ban, and remove people who stated they were running from the Facebook groups, from the boards. Um, and so it wasn't really that they were opening up those positions. It was lip service saying, yeah, we'll let you run, but then deleting everything that was people saying they were going to run because they really Mm. didn't want anyone else in those positions. So like DAG is eating itself alive essentially where we're like, if this is what the community wants, then we're going to sit down and make sure that they, within the laws that govern federal nonprofits and businesses incorporated in the state of Idaho can do. So like, if we wanted to make sure that when we built in our auto ban bylaws, so like if you have a conviction of certain things that fall under our automatic denial of member, automatic denial of membership within Bellagarth bylaws, that that wasn't breaking any Idaho state law. 
and it's not. So mm -hmm. if you fall under certain things, you can be automatically denied membership because that's what the community wanted to keep itself safe. So that's what we did. And I think that's the biggest difference between how Belagarth has survived um, and how Dagahir is sort of killing itself. Well, it sounds to me a little bit like both uh, Dagger here and Belagarth are trying to go through a series of reforms, but Belagarth in these reforms is listening to the will of the people, if you will, and Dagger here seems to be going along with whatever the ruling party wants to do, regardless of what the people want. I would say, yeah, Bell is trying to do what its community wants because that's that's the way we've always functioned. Um, and Dag is like, I don't care what the community wants. Essentially, it's our Atari. I think about it as it's our way or the highway. And Bell's like, all right, let's pave this road together and see where it goes. No, I like that. I like that. And it, it appears because of the nature of power and, and the, the very uh, the scales of power and how they tip and the kind of thin ice that leaders are on that you all are doing the right thing. I, I am on the boards fairly frequently. And although you get salty people who just kind of want to vent their frustration, I haven't really seen any legit complaints against y'all. Like, I, I, you, you have served very well throughout this whole crisis. I mean, thank you. We, we we often get really frustrated because, like, there are lots of people who may not be posting publicly but are, like, super salty about the way that we word things. Um, our president gets a lot of hate on the way he words things um, because people who think that their voices matter more than others' voices, I, I guess is the best way to put it, like, want mm -hmm. him to word things differently. And we're like, whether or not you technically agree with the way we've said things, we're all human, regardless of the fact we're volunteering. And humans have feels. And we're going to feel those feels. And sometimes that means we might be snippy or short or slightly salty about something. And that may come out in the way we post things or like respond to comments more specifically because we heavily edit our posts as a group. Um, nothing that gets posted on the Belagarth main page hasn't gone through like six revisions before we post anything. Um, but like when we reply to things, feelings are involved whether we're volunteering or not and like that's a completely different discussion with the way volunteers in general are treated um our board is specifically but our volunteers in general are treated within the community is is a problematic thing that's a different discussion for a different time but there are we do get a lot of like people complaining that we haven't worded things the way they think things should be worded um but those complaints often come in private messages or um, emails and so the public doesn't always see them, but they it does happen. Well, uh, regardless of what the the snippy people say, I mean they're they're entitled to their opinions. I, I suppose it's valid, but from this humble troll's perspective, y'all are doing a great job. So I, I appreciate the work. It can't be easy. It can't be easy to work through these times because, like we've said before, controversy causes causes polarization. And polarization leads to all sorts of conflict. So I know that the, your tenure that you've had has probably not been that pleasant. But uh, for a lot of those looking in, y'all are great. You're, you're doing absolutely great. Yeah, it's it's been a lot. Um, it's been a lot of trying to figure out how you keep a community as widespread as ours together through a global pandemic and not lose lives. 
And we've been very lucky to our knowledge. We haven't lost any Pelegrim to COVID. We have lost. I know that there have been Pelegrim who have lost family members to COVID. Um, and that was our main goal was trying to make sure that we didn't do anything that promoted the spread of a pandemic of a illness that has already caused like half a million deaths in the U S sure. No, I, I, I agree with you. Sometimes the severe thing needs to be done in order to protect people during uh, the American revolution. They quarant there was a, there's an outbreak of um, I don't remember what it was. I want to say smallpox uh, within the continental army. And they quarantined all those dudes. People were wearing masks. Like, they, they took it very seriously. And so, you know, it is it is something to be taken seriously. So I agree with you there. Um, but I want to bring stuff down real quick from the national level, as we've been talking about, to, like, an event level, to, to like, the leadership of an event and trying to administer that. <laughs> That's also a, a handful. I mean, it's, it's less space. You're dealing with a, a, a smaller geographic area, but you still got a lot of people who are there with a lot of different opinions on how things work and a lot of work to get done. I, I would honestly say from personal experience, running events is harder than running the board um, because the people are there and they're in your face if they don't like something. Um and the people who are generally in your face because they don't like something are very vocal and very loud. And for someone like me who prefers to like avoid getting into arguments with people, it becomes very difficult. And like I've had to employ um, members of my unit um, slash unit family to like be my, for lack of a better term, anger interpreter um, because People don't like it when a non-fighter tells them they're doing something wrong. Um, and whether or not that should be the case, it is in a lot of things. So, like, when I ran Weapons Check at the first Chaos Wars I went to back... The last Chaos Wars we ran at Indian Springs. Um, I had uh, Verdin and a lot of other triad members there helping run that Weapons Check because I knew if I didn't have a large, loud fighter voice behind me i was gonna get walked over um sure. and that we he needed to be there because it did happen a number of times where people are like you don't fight what do you know about these rules regardless of the fact that i have probably read the rules and our bylaws more than most people in our community um sure. and so like running an event or running an area of an event is really difficult because people get in your face about stuff like especially with chaos wars, if the banner isn't run the way people think the banner should be run, people get really salty about it. And it's a lot of work. So, I mean, like I had to find people who knew how to run games effectively. So that's why troll and Sibian run the banner for the time being. Um, I had to find people who could run tournaments without worrying about the people getting angry about tournaments. Um, we have a lot of people who are really salty about the way we run tournaments and how staffing for Chaos Wars is picked out, but then they don't step up and volunteer themselves. So, like, I can't change the way staffing is run if people don't step up and volunteer to do the stuff, right? Like, everyone's like, well, these events are my vacation, and I'm like, well, they're mine too, and I come a lot further to do this than you do. So if you're going to complain, <laughs> either... If you're going to complain, either shut up and step up, um... 
or get out of my face, essentially. I mean, sometimes with slightly stronger language, but hey. Um, and Chaos has slightly less of a problem in the past, though we are starting to run fairly thin on volunteers. Um, we actually had to, the last Chaos Wars we had in person, we had to close Troll a couple of times because we just didn't have people to run Troll. Um, because wow. we needed volunteers to herald because we didn't have anyone to herald. So like running events is, is quite stressful. Um, I've gotten it to a point where I'm less stressed about it because I essentially run events like a giant checklist. So I have like six months before the event, three months before the event, two months before the event, the month before the event, the week before the event, the day before the event, during the event, after the event checklists. And I just go through my checklist and make sure that everything on those checklists gets done when they're supposed to get done. And then events are slightly less stressful for me. But there are still things like when Chaos Wars had a literal dumpster fire because somebody put hot coals in a dumpster. Now we had to make signs that tell people not to put hot coals in a dumpster. That seems like common sense, but I guess for some people that it's not. So, like, things yeah. like that happen. Stuff happens at events and you have to kind of deal with it as it happens. And I mean... I've gotten pretty good at it, but running events, in my opinion, is often more difficult than running Bellagarth because, well, there are more people who have opinions about how the sport as a whole is run. They're less in your face because they're not right in front of you. Um, Oktoberfest, for example, gets a lot of hate about how the event is run, and Numenor itself gets a lot of hate about how the event is run. But when people are like, well, if you don't like it, you should step up to help us change it. People then get salty about having to work on their holiday. And we're like, well, if you don't like it and you don't want to change it, then this is what we're going to do because this is how we get it done. Um, and so, I mean, people have a lot of opinion, opinions about how events are supposed to run and what should happen and how much they should cost and what people should get out of an event and what people should and shouldn't have to do at the event um, because it's their holiday. Um, and... I say to those people that if you're going to complain, you should maybe take a look at where I'm standing from my shoes and how your opinions are affecting the people who are actually doing the work to run the event that you were complaining about. Well, and, and, and one of the points that we've made on this show before is that if everybody does a little bit, it really takes, because if, if there's a small portion of people that are trying and the rest of the folks are just, you know, sitting on their duff or, or off enjoying the event, then those few people are going to have to work really, really hard in order to make sure that things go off well. But if, if everybody took, you know, one troll shift or a, or a security shift or a heralding shift or something along those lines, the folks that, that are there, like running the thing, as, as you are often in the position of, would, would have an easier and better time with it, I think. Well, and I mean, that's the one thing I like a lot about Triad. Like if I need help, so I'm an honorary EBF, which means I'm part of Triad, which is, uh, as you're aware, um, cousin sitting on the other side of the microphone, is uh, the Elite Blood Falcons, the Brotherhood of the Falcons, and the, the Dark Angels. So if I need help with something and there's absolutely no one, I can go, hey, Triad, I need help with this, and I'm going to find 15 people who are going to be like, all right, what do we need to do? Um, those 15 people usually don't want to sit and troll, which, you know, I don't blame them because they want to fight. But like, if I need people to move stuff, like, um, Misty needed hay bales moved at Oktoberfest, the last fest we had in person for feast. And she went, Hey, Triad, I need these bales moved. And on mass, we moved bales because 
that's what we do. Um, and so like that, I, I really like having like that family to help out. And so like sometimes, uh, and it's the same with Gelf. Like if Doc needs help with something at Chaos Wars and he goes, Hey Gelf, we need to get this done. It, it gets done, but it shouldn't be just on the Gelf or just on triad to get things done at events. Um, I agree. If everyone helped out just a little bit life, more people would get to do stuff. I personally don't mind sitting in troll at Ockfest for 18 hours over four days because I don't fight. Um, and if I'm sitting in troll for 18 hours, it means my brothers, my cousins can go hit people with foam because that's what they enjoy. Um, but I also know that if after they're done hitting people with foam, we need help with something, they're going to help. Right. But if everyone right. did that and sat down and went, okay, let's do this stuff would get done quicker stuff would get done more effectively and people would have like there would be less frustration on the part of the volunteers and event coordinators who do end up doing more than they probably should i mean sure. we had a little a young lady who was like 11 volunteer to do troll uh at the last Oktoberfest. if an 11 year old can understand that the event is made up of people who volunteer to do stuff. And this is something she could do. I mean, her parents were at troll with her. Um, and so was I, but like she did her part because she knew that that was important and let, and like, so if an 11 year old can understand that, then maybe as a community, we should sit down and look about how we go about volunteering and working at events and doing things for events that make it so that everyone can be more enjoyable. It's how I look at like chaos wars closes troll at five 30 because it doesn't want troll to be open. So the people who are volunteering for troll can't enjoy nightlife. Different events run that differently, but that's something I really enjoy because it lets us not have need th that many more volunteers to run troll during the evening when most people aren't trolling in anyways. Um, and so like we've sort of, events have sort of like modified the way that they start to do stuff. I mean, we're going to start to see more online waivers, more being able to troll in using digital technology because it's faster and it re requires less humans. Right. Um, and so like, that's something that technology is going to let us change and how we do stuff. Like instead of calculating points for the chaos banner, on in a binder with a piece of paper we can do it in a google doc now troll has like a spreadsheet that calculates all the points for us so we don't so like technology has also sort of aided in how we can move from having to need x many more people to do x job but we've also created other things like chaos wars now has uh a position um that's uh facilitator of stuff and things and um basically public health so the facilitator of stuff and things is like the person who's moving all of the sound system and all of that and we still need a physical human um for things and so i mean it depends like if people step up to help then we're going to be able to do more stuff but if they don't then we're going to do less stuff and when we do less stuff people complain that stuff didn't get done. Which to me sounds like one of those catch-22 situations, but 
Unfortunately, that's our time for today. But with your expertise and leadership, I feel like this conversation could go on a lot longer. So I would I would love to have you back on to discuss these kinds of things again, because it sounds like you have a wealth of knowledge and experience to be able to contribute to this. Uh, but again, that's that's the time we had today. Thank you so much, Antoinette, for coming on. Thank you for having me. And uh, I think we're going to move on now to our third section, which is the consequences of Soviet overreach. For this final section, we're going to be talking about the consequences of Soviet overreach. We've seen a little bit of how the war in Afghanistan between the Soviets and the Afghans, or the Mujahideen, went. It was very much like the Panjshir offensives. A whole lot of harassment and uh, sabotage, disruption of supply lines on the half of the Mujahideen, and frustrated attempts to bring them into open battle by the Soviets. A little bit of back and forth. The Soviets and the Afghan army definitely had some solid wins. However, the majority of this war went to the Mujahideen. And there are a number of contributing factors to this. And one of the chief ones was the media game. They were able to garner international sympathy because they were being invaded. The occupation itself was already a polarizing influence across the world. It was already condemned as an unnecessary invasion. So it didn't take much for the media of the world to slowly turn against the Soviet Union, because for all of the might of their fantastic army, their media game was off. The propaganda worked well within their own borders, but it wasn't doing as well as reaching the rest of the world. Two countries whose news did reach the rest of the world were the United States and Britain. And the media campaigns that were run there were very sympathetic to the Mujahideen. It is strange now being an American, as I'm looking at the longest war in our lives starting to wrap up, and think that the United States at one point was buddy-buddy with the Mujahideen. It just, it's amusing to me. It illustrates that point from the first section that no alliance, that no harmony, no hostility is permanent. In the mid-1980s, the Mujahideen had garnered international support from Pakistan from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, from China, and many others. But one of their chief supporters was the United States, especially the, C the CIA. The CIA provided the Mujahideen with weapons and with training, both of which heavily, heavily contributed to their ability to wait out that war and eventually beat the Soviets. This training was extensive. Some of the same training that is used for CIA operatives and for special forces was given to these folks who at the time were fighting against America's enemy, who were fighting against America's uh, arch nemesis, the rival at that time, and were fighting with American interests. So, of course, Americans supported them. So with this international sport, one might have imagined that the Mujahideen were united under a single commander, a single general. But this went against the very traditional Afghan sense of individuality, of the separation of power. 
And when we were speaking about this in the first episode, in the second episode, when we were uh, examining the transition from the royal family to the to the state, to the uh, parliamentary monarchy that existed before the PDPA uh, led their revolution, they had a strong, strong history of not just neutrality, but everybody having their own say. These each Each of these regions or cultures or tribes had their leadership. And yes, they may have been under an overall king, but it was loose. It was very loose. So this segregation of power continued into this, where you had commanders being formed, uh, and they were kind of loose regional leaders. They were chosen naturally. If you recall in the first section, we were speaking about how if leaders reveal themselves, then they should be built up. And this is exactly what the Mujahideen were doing. They were looking and they were like, okay, well, this person is leading. People defer to this person. They have knowledge. Let's bring them up. Let's, let's make sure that they're in a position where they can have positive influence. Heck yeah. And these regional warlords, these commanders, provided one another with mutual support. They may have had the final say within their territory, within their particular little fiefdom, but they helped each other out. Anytime the Soviets would move into a region, the surrounding warlords would move into that region as well to help out the one that was under duress. And when the Soviets would withdraw, they would go back to their places and wait building up their forces, training their forces, but also just sort of waiting for the next offensive that they could mess with. And in this way, we also understand that the Mujahideen favored sabotage. After those first Panjshir offensives and the heavy attacking of the supply lines, sabotage became huge. And these were military and civilian targets that they would hit. They would hit uh, bridges and railways and ammo depots and oil pipelines anything to disrupt the infrastructure and the concentration and the morale of their enemy. This was also assassination time. The Mujahideen definitely enjoyed assassination, and they were, again, against military and civilian targets that were against their, against their interests, and were they were able to get, and they trained for it hard. Remember, when we've been speaking about assassins in the past, how they follow in the tradition of the Sicarii, uh, these, these Mujahideen assassins were no different. They would train for weeks, months, practicing the exact scenario in which they would assassinate their target. And a lot of times it would be drive-by shootings or bombs, but they were always exceptionally well rehearsed so that they went off without a hitch. So between these two things, the sabotage and assassination, they did a pretty good job of disrupting the Soviet and the uh, Afghan army's ability to maintain, maintain control and cohesion. Inevitably, the Soviet Union would withdraw from Afghanistan. We know the end of this story. And around 1988, that full withdrawal began to take place. Before that, however, there was a gradual transition of power, a gradual transition of the fighting burden to the local forces, to the Afghan army. And this was at a time when, yet again, the Afghan army was at a, a huge state of mass desertions. People were just leaving it en masse, whether it was because they had sympathy for the Mujahideen, whether it was because they had fear of the Mujahideen, people were not wanting to serve. And so this was already going to, to not go well, but the Soviet Union couldn't be there anymore. And their new premier, their new general secretary, Gorbachev, who was promoted in 1985, he understood this. He had watched the Soviet Union squander its resources and its, its power over trying to occupy all these different areas, the Eastern Bloc, Mongolia, and Afghanistan, 
among others, where they had interests, operatives. Gorbachev saw this as a massive waste of economy, and so in an attempt to preserve the Soviet Union, he started withdrawing all these forces from these highly contested areas. And during this withdrawal, a puppet regime was set up inside the Afghan state. But it was weakened by divisions within, you guessed it, our old friends, the PDPA, and in particular, the Parcham faction. And these guys, they seem to be able to come together when it suits them, but their self-interests are such that when there's not a common enemy, they tear each other apart. I think there's something to be learned there. And this puppet regime was unable to consolidate power, either political, regional, or military, because it was completely ineffective and its army was constantly hemorrhaging members. So the war came to an end. The official Soviet-Afghan war came to an end. And when the tallies came up at the end, they're rather staggering. Because with the Soviet casualties, we'll, we'll talk about the occupier first. Their personnel losses, 14,453 dead. Wounded, injured, or suffered concussion, 53,753. And those who had suffered from sickness, and this one's a pretty incredible number, 415,932. Remember that in the American Civil War, and many other wars, sickness is huge. You know, dysentery, cholera, they're, they're huge killers where people gather. And in this particular case, hepatitis and typhoid fever were the most common. They were the most common culprits, and neither of those are pleasant diseases. I haven't had either, but I would very much like to avoid it. And these two were spread very easily by climate and sanitary conditions, which were ideal for them. Again, the climate was kind of meh, and the sanitary conditions... Again, the climate varied massively between very hot and very cold. And then the sanitary conditions... The Soviets did not come prepared to fight a guerrilla war. They did not come prepared to be out in the bush hunting for folks who knew those mountains far better than they did. And the camps were also squalor as well. So, yeah, disease was rife. But as the Soviets pulled back, as Gorbachev desperately tried to preserve the Soviet Union economically, there were divisions inside, particularly between the party and the military, which is not good. Because this loss, according to Soviet scholars, undermined the legitimacy and the image of invincibility that the Soviet Union had had up to that time. Because at the end of World War II, they were one of the clear winners. The Red Army had marched across all of Eastern Europe to get half of Berlin. It was very impressive. They had one of the largest, most powerful military forces that has ever existed on this planet. And it was defeated by a bunch of vagabonds hiding in the mountains. If you recall the original Soviet estimate, they were like, ah, oh, these, these goat farmers, these hicks. There's no way, no way they can take on the might of the Soviet army. But they did. And so this illusion was shattered, not just in the international community, but within the Soviet Union itself, where that propaganda had played very heavily into the success of that government. But with the fall of that, well, a lot of people started questioning a lot of things. So the Soviet Union was not doing well at this point, and it was eventually dissolved, as we know. But... More importantly, 
Let's talk about the Afghan toll, the aftermath on the Afghan side. And this is always one of the tougher things for me because, yes, the Mujahideen and the Soviet Union had entered into consensual violence. They had decided to fight one another. And as a military historian, that doesn't bother me very much. Okay, these guys wanted this for the most part. So let's, you know, it's, let's study it, but it's not that much. It doesn't impact the emotions nearly as much. But reading about civilians, I don't like that. I know that we may call it collateral damage now, but I, I don't think civilians should die between, uh, between the fights between two people. That's me. That's me. I may be soft-hearted, but I don't care for it. And it's hard in this particular case to estimate how many people died. Because for one thing, on the Mujahideen side, there weren't clear records kept. There was no official command roster where they could check off KIA, MIA. And if there were, we don't have access to them. And the number of people that were killed or displaced, that's also hard to measure because it was just pure chaos. Nobody knew where anybody was. People were moving constantly from valley to valley to valley to escape the violence. But we estimate somewhere between 500,000 and 2 million Afghan dead, the majority of which were civilian. And the majority of which died because of landmines and carpet bombings. Both sides used landmines a lot to try to trip each other up. Children don't necessarily know what a minefield is. So there's a whole generation of children in Afghanistan that uh, has a whole lot of people who are missing limbs or eyes or have to be in wheelchairs because their, their spines got blown out or whatever. It, it was a, a horrible time in Afghan history. And they're still digging these th things up. They're still finding them in places. People are still getting blown up. So the, yes, the landmines were very effectively deployed. And then the carpet bombing was something that the, the Soviets favored in to attempt to flush the Mujahideen out. But as we discussed previously, the Mujahideen had moles, had informants within the structure that was going against it. And so they knew about this. They'd move out of the area. And sometimes they'd be able to evacuate the people and sometimes they wouldn't. But the civilians didn't know. And they were the ones that paid the price. And the war crimes committed by the Soviet Union were, they were long, long to count. I, I don't have the emotional energy to be able to list them all right now, but suffice to say that it included massacres, rapes, massive infrastructure damage, the use of chemical weapons, torture, and looting, which left the country devastated and led to a civil war in the aftermath because this puppet regime that was set up, they had no legitimacy. The people hadn't chosen it. And the Mujahideen were still very, very strong. And so the they, they, there was a civil war, a really nasty civil war that popped up after this. So the region was destabilized at this point. So the Afghan people suffered. The Soviet Union suffered. The Mujahideen came into their own. This idea, this idea of this violent jihadism spread. And their groups and their ideals, their training, their practices spread, spread to places like Afghanistan, like over Afghanistan, larger, Pakistan, Algeria, Bosnia, Chechnya, and Egypt all started getting an influx of these ideas and of these people. There were also tens of thousands of refugee ch children that fled into Pakistan and were recruited into madrasas. Now, madrasa in Arabic means school. 
And there's a lot of different types of madrasa. There's religious madrasas, there's secular madrasas. It just means school. But in this particular case, these madrasas were about religious indoctrination. And so as these children grew up, they were radicalized. Their lives had been hell. They left their families, their homes because of violence. And then they came to this place where they were taken advantage of, intellectually speaking. And a lot of them came to fill the ranks of the Taliban there in Afghanistan, which is still definitely active today. And a lot of them went to go fill Sipai Sahaba in Pakistan. But there were also, there's also one very famous man who came out of this experience, who had come over from Saudi Arabia and had his experience and training within this conflict. Osama bin Laden, who then founded Al-Qaeda in 1988. And it grew, and it became very powerful. And eventually, in 1993, there was a World Trade Center bombing in America. And then there was September 11th, 2001. So the Mujahideen, while they weren't necessarily a cohesive group at that time anymore, the idea had spread. And it is something that the world is still dealing with today. Like I said, this, this particular topic, this particular book, was always going to be a little bit more controversial just because it is so recent. But this is the chain of events. This is what had happened. And this was the consequence of this overreach. There is always a price to pay for ambition. And if that price should be too high, the consequences are devastating. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>